0: Hello everybody, Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network, looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement. This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. In 1869, nine Philadelphia garment cutters whose union had been shattered, and its members blacklisted, formed a secret society, which they named the Noble Order of the Knights of Labor. Uriah Stevens, the founder, was far in advance of many of the members, was so obsessed with the value of secrecy, and with the sexist view that women could not keep secrets, that while he favored the inclusion of all male workers in Mentioned women, he did not advocate opening membership to women. They were excluded from the Knights for over a decade. In 1881, the delegates voted to no longer have oaths and other secret aspects. The next year, the new master workman, Terrence B. Powderly, predicted the membership would increase. The 1880 census showed the population of the nation had grown by 30% but the number of men over 16 employed by manufacturing had increased by only 25%, while that of women over 15 had increased by 64%. About one-fourth of the four million women workers in 1890 were housekeepers, stewards, hostesses, or family servants. Those working in factories were 389,231 in clothing, Laundries and cleaning one hundred and nine thousand two hundred and eighty ninety two thousand three hundred and ninety four in cotton textiles, forty two thousand four hundred and twenty in other textiles, in shoes twenty one thousand seven, fourteen thousand one hundred and twenty six in box and containers in tobacco ten thousand eight hundred and sixty eight. In printing, 9,322. In silk trays, 9,211. In carpets and rugs, 7,674. And in hats, 6,357. At the 1879 convention, Philip Van Patten introduced a resolution to permit women to become members and to organize local assemblies under the same conditions as men. In 1881, when male shoe workers of the local assembly 64 in Philadelphia refused to accept a wage cut, management turned to the unorganized female shoe workers and cut wages 30 to 60 percent. The female workers struck while led by Mary Sterling, Harry Skeffington promptly accepted the strikers into the order. Garfield assembly 1684 was the first composed exclusively of women chartered in 1881 once the doors were open, the number of assemblies grew sharply one more women's local in 1881 three in 1882 nine in 1883 13 in 1884 46 in 1885 and 121 in 1886. When a small community did not contain enough workers in a trade to form a separate local, they formed a mixed local, including all eligible Knights. The first government employees in Washington, D.C. joined the Knights of Labor in 1883, the same year that the Civil Service Act made a limited number of government posts in Washington subject to competitive examinations. Women were encouraged for the first time to compete with men for jobs in the federal government. When the first test under the Civil Service Act was given in 1883, the highest score was received by Mary Frances Hoyt, a Vassar College graduate who was appointed to a $900 clerkship on September fifth. but she received only $600 while men already in the post were paid $900. Women clerks in several government departments formed the Women's National Labor League in September 1882 with Charlotte Smith as president and Elizabeth S. Bryant as secretary. The league affiliated with the Knights of Labor in February 1883. In the year and a half preceding 1887, no fewer than 13,200 Bay State women were admitted to the Knights. 80% of them in the shoe and textile industries. Women Nights were part of the 10,000 members of the labor movement in Lynn at a time when the total working people in the city was not much more than 15,000. While the Knights did not wage a consistent campaign to eliminate racism in the order's ranks, it did bring large numbers of black workers into the predominantly white labor movement for the first time. The Knights organized women's local in Atlanta, Richmond, Durham, Memphis, Raleigh, and Jacksonville. Most were segregated, but a few integrated locals of female Knights existed in the South. Young black men in Chicago set up a tailoring establishment after their employer locked them out for attending a labor parade. By soliciting subscriptions, they raised the $400 needed to begin production. Nine months later, they had produced 136000 dollars worth of garments. In Baltimore and New York, women operated cooperative shirt factories, while women in Waterford, New York, ran a collar and cuff factory. Black women in Richmond operated a cooperative laundry under the auspices of the Knights of Labor. The first major strike conducted by the Knights was that of the Telegraphers against Western Union in 1883. It was also the first K of L strike in which men and women struck together. The Telegraphers were defeated after three months' walkout. Many were refused reemployment and were blacklisted. Taking his cue from Western Union, a Philadelphia shoe manufacturer discharged the grievance committee and every officer of the Garfield Assembly in his shop. The male knights in Philadelphia advised the members of the assembly not to resist. But the female knights rejected their advice. They felt if they did not resist the discrimination against union members, the organization of women workers would suffer. They called a the strike and after a bitter struggle succeeded in reinstating every one of their members. On April 25, 1885, shoe manufacturers Brennan and White in Williamsburg, all women employees who belonged to the Knights Shoemaker's Union. When the mill workers walked out in protest, on April 25, 1885, shoe manufacturers Brennan and White in Williamsburg, locked out all women employees who belonged to the Knights Shoemaker's Union. When the mill workers walked out in protest, scabs were hired given loaded revolvers and told to shoot to kill, if necessary, to protect themselves against striker violence. They had the women blacklisted and sought female convicts from the King County Prison as replacements. Some of the convicts refused to work. The women strikers gave a statement praising them and assuring the manufacturers that with the power of the Union, they would triumph we will live to witness the day of our victory and they did a boycott by the knights the new york protective association and brooklyn central labor union came to their aid soon brennan and white reinstated all the strikers and signed an agreement with the union representing the women in their shop in 1881 a union of cloak makers joined a newly organized group of dressmakers and proceeded to ally themselves with the New York City's Knights. This group did not last long and refused women from the trades. Many of the same men tried again in 1882, this time accepting women. In July 1883, they met in Standard Hall, men downstairs and women in a separate meeting upstairs, agreeing to stand together with the men. More than 750 workers, about half of them women, agreed to go out on strike for a $2.50 daily wage rate and a 10-hour day. They insisted that piece rates be constructed so that operators who were paid according to that system could earn $15 a week. When women still working in the shops joined the walkout, the manufacturers agreed to the workers' demands. By August 1883, the successful strikers had returned to work. This was not the first strike by the Knights, but it was the first to end in victory. Women members of the Knights went out on strike in 1884 in the textile mills of Fall River and Worcester, in the ha- factories of South Norwood, Connecticut, and of tobacco workers in Durham, North Carolina. Plant of W. Duke sons and company were outstanding for the militancy and perseverance of the strikers. One of the most memorable strikes of the decade of militant strikes was conducted in 1885 by women knights in the carpet weaving industry. A few men were involved, but 90% of the strikers were young women, employed by Alexander Smith and Sons in Yonkers, New York. The strike began on February 20th 1885 when Smith refused to reinstate a wage reduction to pay wages already due to rehire at least 20 women who had been fired for membership in the Knights. The company's stringent factory discipline was another cause for the strike. On the day before the strike, only 700 of the women were members of the Union. After the strike began, all 2,500 women joined the Knights. Unable to hire enough replacements, the company closed for a few weeks in April and May. When the mills reopened, few strikers accepted Smith's offer to rehire, all but those who had begun the walkout three months earlier. The company did find three to four hundred girls who would work, but the strikers fought to prevent them from entering the plants. The police attacked the pickets and seized three other women strikers, Ellen Tracy, Lizzie Wilson, and Mary Carey charged them with walking upon Neprihan Avenue near the stock mills. The arrest of the women strikers aroused tremendous indignation in Yonkers. At a mass protest meeting at Getty Square, resolutions were adopted denouncing the actions of the police as being despotic, pledging moral support to the strikers. Fearing that no jury would ever convict the women, the court ruled that the strikers could be tried without a jury But an appeal to the higher courts reversed reversed that decision, and the trial was held before a jury. As the Yonkers officials had feared, the jury acquitted the young women. Wives of members of the Knights of the Order were also of great assistance to male knights engaged in strikes and boycotts. They helped on picket lines, gave scabs the ditch and water cure, and in Cleveland's rolling mill strikes, they threw stones pieces of slag and cylinder at both the strike breakers and the police who protected them while women occupied positions of leadership in the knights of labor it was in no way commensurate with their numbers in and contributions to the order powderly drew the line on the number of men who could function as such officials to just one mill. the highest position by a woman in the knights was that of master workman of a district assembly. The first to do so was Mrs. Elizabeth Rogers, who was chosen master workman of a Chicago Women's Assembly in eighteen eighty one. Lenora M. Barry, who headed a district assembly of nearly one thousand women knights in upstate New York, was also elected a master workman in eighteen eighty six. Elizabeth Morgan was elected Master Workman of Assembly. 1789 of Chicago in 1887, Mrs. Elizabeth Lease, who had urged Kansas farmers to raise less corn and more hay, was elected master workman of the largest local assemblies in the state of Kansas in 1891. The 1885 General Assembly authorized the creation of a committee on women's work because so many women assemblies had been created. They came up with a report. The knights appointed Lenora Barry, an enthusiastic knight and outstanding orator as general investigator. Barry delivered more than five hundred lectures and organizing half a dozen new women's locals in addition to increasing membership in old ones and organizing and organizing scores of mills as well. Barry delivered three reports to annual gatherings of the Knights General Assembly in 1887, 1888, and 1889. All three are of great importance in the history of working women, but perhaps their outstanding feature is a space devoted to the conditions of working women in various cities throughout the United States. Barry described female employees in Philadelphia's corset factory who had to pay a fine of 10 cents or eating, laughing, singing, or talking while on the job. When reporting from work by even one minute late, she was locked out and fined two hours pay for wasted time. A clothing manufacturer in Terry Hoot, Indiana, demanded that his female operatives pay 25 cents a week for the steam required to operate their machinery and for the needles they used. They also had to pay for repairs to their machines. She found even worse conditions and treatment in a linen mill in Patterson, New Jersey. The women stood on a stone floor with water from a revolving cylinder flying constantly against their breasts. They had to, even in the coldest weather, to go home with underclothing dripping because they were allowed neither space or time which to change their clothing. Barry compiled the first nationwide stats on women's work and found they earned from two dollars and fifty cents to three dollars for a work week of 84 hours she soon discovered that there were many obstacles to be overcome in organizing working women the three ones were the opposition of employers male knights and working women themselves she concluded her report to the 1888 General Assembly on the encouraging note that 10,000 organized women today look to the women's department for counsel, dulcet assistance, it is their hope and their guiding star. But by the time she attended the 1889 General Assembly her optimism had faded. The order's influence had declined sharply and there was little she could do to stem the tide. Her annual report for 1889 reflected both her disappointment and her sense of defeat. Berry startled the delegates by confessing that she had always believed women's place was in the home, saying, If it were possible, I would wish it were not necessary to women to learn any trade but that of domestic duties. But what really stunned the delegates was Barry's request that they disband the women's department. After a careful analysis of the obstacles she had to confront in three years of investigating and organizing, Barry concluded that she had not achieved the results she had hoped for. Knights, especially John W. Hayes of the General Executive Board, were pressing for the abolition of the Women's Department and for Barry's removal. Barry's recommendation was not accepted. The Women's Department continued. Barry continued as general instructor and director, lecturing and investigating. Then in November 1889, Powderly informed her that to the straitened and circumstances in which the order is placed, she had to stop traveling and would have to concentrate on activity in Philadelphia. Barry did as asked and continued organizing, Philadelphia area until November 1890 when she married Oliver R. Lake, a St. Louis printer and fellow knight. She urged the 1890 General Assembly and the delegates to select her successor. An effort was made to continue the women's department and the office Barry vacated was offered to Elena P. Stevens when she declined post. The women's department was abolished. After 1886, when the Knights reached the top of its success with its membership reaching nearly 700,000, the Order began a rapid decline. The tremendous employer counteroffensive that followed the Haymarket Affair wiped out the Order's substantial membership gains and left many locals in severe distress. In the spring of 1886, the district assembly in the area of Troy, New York, had 88 local assemblies. The Joan of Arc assemblies had a membership of over 4,000 made-up-of-collar girls. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.